0: Good evening, New Genesis Christian Worship Center. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. My name is Damien. It's a pleasure to be with you all once again to study the word of God. So excited to continue on in our Romans chapter nine study. I hope that you have enjoyed our study in Romans thus far. I pray that uh, the Lord has been speaking to your heart concerning the things that we have been discussing. And I tell you, The more that you dive into the word of God, the more that the Lord begins to reveal his plan for your life to you. And that's the most important thing is to be smack dab in the will of God, allowing his Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. That's the best place that we can be in. So before we get started, if you can, bow your heads with me, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you this evening as we come together to study your holy word. I pray, oh God, that you would enlighten us, speak to us, lead us, guide us, strengthen us, and help us to stay focused tonight as we sit under the anointing of your teaching that will lead us into your truth. I thank you, oh God, for shaking the foul grounds. I thank you for moving in our midst and bringing us to that perfected state that you have called us to. I give you all the praise and all the glory and ask it all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen and amen. We're continuing on. In our Romans chapter 9 study, I was off last week because I lost my voice, but I am back thanks to to be unto the Lord that he's brought me back. Voice is full intact, so we're ready to go this evening. And uh, like we do every single week, we're going to do a a recap of the things that we talked about the last time that we were together. So last time we looked at verses 6 through 10, and it was very interesting because there was a lot of... Um, parallel in between uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and and, and the, the promised seed and so forth. And the reason being is because the attitude that Israel had concerning their salvation and their place in God. And uh, we first have to realize and understand that the word of God never falls on empty ground due to our failures. So what does that mean? That means that if we fail to do what God has called us to do, God is not at fault with that. His word is not something that we can just throw to to the wayside and say, well, it didn't work in this situation. I tried it and it did not work. No, the word of God will always work. And we understand from the scripture that we must have faith in God because without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so when our heart is not in the place that it should be then we won't receive anything from God and so the problem that Israel had is that they were looking at their situation and they were claiming that they were Abraham's seed and therefore because of that association they were automatically entered into the promises and so when one was looking at the state of Israel and where they were and and comparing to what God said in his word concerning them, you know the, the thought pattern was well God was wrong you know And when you look at our nature and God's nature, we can see from scripture that we are the ones who are always in the wrong because God within himself is righteous. God within himself is holy. He cannot make a mistake. God is all knowing. We understand all of these things. So to try to place the fault at the feet of God when there is a failure is is very foolish to do so. And so um, God is not at fault, again, if we fail to abide in his word. You know, we're living in a time right now where people are questioning everything. Uh, More and more people are falling away from the faith because they're looking at the world and they're saying that, well, the Bible has been saying that God promised that he was going to come back, that God promised this, God promised that, and look how everything is going. So that means that, you know, the word of God cannot be trusted or I was in church, and they told me to do this and that, and it didn't work, so everything failed. Again, the fault does not lie with God. I mean, we have to realize and understand that God has a set of standards that we must live by. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. We cannot approach him any kind of way just because we want to do that. There are certain things, there, there is a protocol, there is a, a procedure, if you will, in, in abiding in the things of God. So when we look at the state of the world and the way that it is, one cannot fault God in that at all because God has given every single human being an opportunity to turn away from their inerrant nature that we all have. And so when man makes the choice not to go the way of God, this is the result, unrighteousness. You know, the Lord has me doing a study right now in the book of Genesis, and it was very interesting concerning Eve. And that she is listening to the voice of the serpent, she was not surprised by the fact that the serpent could speak to her. She's listening to what he was saying. And then she responds back with the word of God. And then she actually inserted her own thing where she said, God said, we shall not eat of this fruit and not touch it. God did not say anything about them touching it. But for her to then adhere to the word of the serpent, God was not responsible for that decision now some may say well God presented the opportunity well exactly he presented the opportunity for them to trust and believe in him that had to be so because in order for this relationship to go forward with God we are in a relationship with God he's loving us we're loving him there has to be a free exchange and this all goes back wrapped up into the mysteries of God there's a whole lot of things that we don't fully understand but the key thing I wanna bring out is that God gave specific instruction to Adam. Adam then obviously related that to Eve. Now we look at the situation that she was in, and she clearly should have rejected what the serpent was presenting to her. And uh, even though she quoted what God said, again, she added something else that God did not say. So the idea is, is that the failure in the garden cannot be placed at the feet of God because he gave the specific instructions to Adam. They both understood what was meant by what God said. How do we know this? Look at the intelligence that God gave them. The Bible says that God brought all of the land animals to Adam and whatever he called them, that's what they were. That denotes a high intelligence. But once again, we we see that we the failure in the garden is not at the feet of God. The same happens to us today. The word of God says this concerning a multitude of things. And if we fail to abide in that word, that does not mean the word was not sufficient to handle anything that God said it would do. But rather, we are the ones who are at fault. I go back to the example of, of my profession. If I am building an application I know how I want it to function. I have designed it a certain way. And when I release it to my other coworkers to use, I give them specific instructions. I do trainings, all of these different things, so that they can fully understand how to use the program. We have a Q&A session, go through multiple iterations where you can ask your questions, you can email me your questions and so forth and so on. I give them plenty of opportunity to see if they truly understand what I was saying. And when all of them nod and shake their head and say, yes, I completely understand. And then right around the corner, they, they turn around and they do the complete opposite and the program blows up in their face. They all turn and they look at me like I am the problem. And my response always to them is, did you do exactly what I told you to do? Well, I did this. Well, you didn't do exactly what I told you to do. So this is the end result. I am not at fault. If you abide by the instructions, the program is going to run as intended, as I have created it to. And again, that goes back to the word of God. So God is not at fault for men not abiding in his word. Just because you say that you're a Christian doesn't truly make you one. There has to be a change of heart. And we are seeing a lot of that today where people are professing to be Christians, but yet they have no relationship with God. Their lifestyle is the same as a sinner who is living constantly in sin. They're still living in their unrighteous state. They're still doing the same unrighteousness over and over and over again, and yet they're claiming that they are Christians, believers that that is not the case. And see, Israel had a problem with that. They felt that, oh, we're Abraham's seed, so therefore we're automatically saved. So we can live however we want to live and still reap the benefits of the promise. And the Bible has clearly said that is not the case. And we're going to get more into that tonight about how that is foolish thinking because the Bible clearly tells us that be not deceived, God is not mocked, but whatever you sow, you are going to reap. We cannot sit around and mock God and then expect to get to heaven. There are so many people on uh, social media. You can go on YouTube shorts. You can pull them up on TikTok. You see all of these people talking about they love the Lord, and yet their lifestyle is consistent of that of an unrighteous person doing the works of their father, the devil. And in the end, they all feel like they're going to go to heaven. You cannot have your cake and eat it, too. There must be a change of heart. God cannot accept anything that is not built upon faith in him. Israel had this problem, and they believed that just because they were the seed of Abraham that they were saved. That's not true. In order to see the promises of God, the person must believe in God, must accept Christ, must be reborn. And and the rebirth comes when one truly has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The old man is going to be buried and the new man is going to arise. And even though we will fall short in sin and Mr. Mark after salvation, the idea is that we are not living that as a lifestyle. And then through our imperfections after salvation, the Holy Spirit is then grieved. And this is where we enter back into that fellowship with them by asking God for forgiveness. Yes, the blood covers us. The blood is what keeps us in that fellowship. But you cannot continue in a relationship um, habitually bringing an offense to one you're in a relationship with. You cannot do that. Eventually, the relationship is going to crumble. And you will find yourself in a state that you do not want to be in. How do I know this? Look at what the Lord told the prophet Ezekiel. If a man turned from his righteousness and goes back into a, a unrighteousness, his righteousness shall not be counted up, up towards him. Lord has some very specific things to say about all of this. And we have to be extremely careful. So, yes, you know, the blood is there. But you cannot continue to bring an offense. How do we notice? We studied this in Romans. Shall we continue in sin because grace abound? God forbid. Paul said, away with that foolish thought. You cannot continue to abide in sin because we have grace abounding with us. And you cannot continue in that to say like, oh, the blood already covers me. You cannot continue in sin and think that everything is going to be okay. The Bible says, be ye holy for I am holy. And the last time I checked, holiness and unrighteousness do not go together. Jesus said, if you're connected to me, I am the vine, all I produce is good fruit. So if you say that you're connected to me and you are not producing good fruit, Jesus said, what good are you? i tell you how good you are. You are worthy to be chopped down, cut up, and thrown into the fire and burn and be like the chafe that flies away in the wind. That's what the Lord himself said. So in order for us to see all of the promises of God, or anyone for that matter, we must truly believe in him. And believe means that there is something that has changed in our hearts. That we have turned away from the person that we used to be, and now we desire holiness and righteousness. Yea, though I fall short and bring an offense to God, that's why the the Holy Spirit is there. That we may then get it right, come back into that fellowship with him. And then we move forward to be whom he has called us to be. So with all of that being said, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Now, this is interesting because, like I said before, we're going to continue going on in this parallel that Paul is using to show Israel how foolish they are in their thinking. So Israel continued to believe that they were entitled to all the benefits of God simply because they were children of Abraham. So in other words, they wanted to live their life how they saw fit and still reap the benefits of salvation. God has and will always continue to stay true to his nature and his word. And if we go outside of that, we will not only be in sin, but we will fail. That's what we've been talking about in our course of our whole study in Romans. Our association to salvation does not lie in belonging to a church, giving money to a church, holding a certain title, et cetera, et cetera, but rather it is our connection to Christ that saves us, which comes by faith in him. God is not unfair in how he deals with mankind because everything that he does is right. So, after we study these scriptures tonight, we're going to understand why God would always stay true to his word, how God deals with mankind, why we must serve the divine nature, how God chooses to show mankind mercy, how the words elder and younger relate to our spiritual condition, what the phrase heart of faith means, and why it is impossible for unrighteousness to be found in God. So, if you have your bibles turn with me to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to bring up the uh bible study notes because this is getting into a lot of information and I want to make sure that we are covering it all. So we're looking at Romans chapter 9, I'm going to start reading in verse number 11 and the scripture says this, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calls." So remember, like I said in the introduction, Israel was thinking that they were saved because they were associated with Abraham. They were saying we are his children. So the Bible went through a series of examples to show us that you cannot claim that just because you have an association, because if you truly were connected to Abraham, you would do the very things That Abraham did in terms of believing in God. And so here in this particular verse, the phrase, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, is referring to Esau and Jacob, who were the twin sons of Rebekah. So this has to be brought into their attention because let's go back for just a moment, looking at the previous verses here, because we we understood that uh, Paul was using Rebekah and Isaac as an example here. And so this was, this the idea here was that God did not choose Ishmael nor any of the sons of Keturah, which would be born, but only Isaac. And if the Jews were urging that these offsprings were not the sons of Sarah, but they, Israel were, because now they were saying like, wait a minute, we are the true Israelites. And we've heard this term go over and over again. There are other different groups of people who believe that they are the true Israelites. This same mindset is not new. Like the the, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, there is nothing new under the sun. And they were saying these very things. Then Paul gives this analogy to them and he responds by pointing to Jacob. And so through the arrogant statement that they were talking about, they were heirs of Abraham and Sarah, that they were automatically partakers of God's salvation and promises, regardless of if they served him or not. Paul is striking down that idea of being saved by way of association to a particular nationality. So he continues on here by making the parallel the example of these two boys. And so the argument made by the Jews in this verse here in 11 was that Ishmael was the illegitimate child of Abraham and he had no rights against Isaac. And since they were the legitimate descendants of Abraham, they had a right to, to, to reap the benefits of God and, and they could not be revoked. So in other words, what they were saying is that, wait a minute, we are children of Isaac. So it doesn't matter how we live in, these promises cannot be revoked. Now, if we were the descendants of Ishmael, oh sure, yeah, you can revoke it all you want to because really they're not heirs to the promise. But we are. So so, we, so there is nothing that you can do, I can do, or anyone can do to revoke these promises. So in their mind, they were thinking, well, let's just live how we want to live. Let's just do whatever it is that we want to do. And Paul was saying, no, 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 no. You cannot think that way. And Paul's going to conclude this argument when we get down to verse 13. And that's why I went back to verse number 10 to kind of bring context as to why these two boys were being brought into the discussion. So God, as we know through the scripture, made the distinction in the case of Isaac's children. And he said that the elder shall serve the younger. Now, this has a spiritual application behind it. I'm gonna keep reading from the notes. Jacob and Esau had one father and mother and the physical distinction between the twin boys was the priority of birth, which God disregarded. Think about that. Esau, the elder son was rejected and Jacob, the younger son, was made heir to the promises. The reason for this is going to be explained in the next phrase, which says that the purpose of God according to election might stand. This is referring to God's foreknowledge. So God has always stayed true to his nature and his word. And because of that, he does not operate in the fact that he decides who's going to be saved and who's not. It has always been based upon whosoever will. So, God, through omniscience, which means that He is all knowing, He is able to know the future, able to see things before it happens. And so, therefore, He knows how to respond to individuals. So, when we talk about this election, it's still dependent upon the person's decision. But, like I just stated, God, through foreknowledge, knows the decision that you are going to make. That's why he can call us to a particular point. And then that election is made sure because God already knows what you're going to decide. So here Paul is bringing this out to show them that God already knows who truly is going to accept him. And for those people that were making this argument, God already knew that they were not going to accept him. So, But by their own admission, they're like, well, we're just heirs to this promise regardless. And so, again, they felt that they could do whatever it is that they wanted to do. But in the eyes of God, he did not see them as a, a as a descendant of Abraham, as a child of Abraham. Why? Because of their rejection of him. And that's why Paul is bringing this out, because in Esau, if you know the story, he didn't really want to do what his father wanted him to do. He wanted to go out and do his own thing, have his own ways. And he was willing to give up his birthright. So God through foreknowledge already knew what that was going to happen. That's why he looked to the other brother, looked to the younger brother to say that's where it's that's what the promise is going to be. That, you know, that's where it is. That's who I'm going to use because I understand and I already know that he's going to accept me. So we see it's all been based upon the decision. And God then uses his foreknowledge to then work around what man is going to do. So that's why all this is coming out. So in the case of them, they cannot claim that because in the eyes of God, he doesn't see them as being part of the promise, even though, yes, they may have come from the lineage of Abraham, but when God spoke about the seed of Abraham, he was speaking about those who would come to him by faith. And therefore he would count them as the seed of Abraham, as the descendants of Abraham. And he's, he brings the example of the two brothers. Why was one rejected? He was rejected because God knew that he was going to reject him. So therefore, God rejected him from, uh, from putting the promise upon him and chose the younger brother because God knew the younger brother would accept him. So, again, it's all going back to acceptance, because if it, if it was just by association, then it didn't matter what Esau did. He could have just given He could have just said, I'm giving up the birthright, do whatever and still had it. No, that's not how it works. There is a, a order of things. And then Paul goes on to the next phrase. Not of works, but of him that calls. This is the sum of how God deals with men and how he operates. When we look at the word works in the Greek, it means the act of doing labor or work. So in the context of this scripture here, it refers to someone attempting to earn his or her salvation or favor with God by their works. And that was another problem that was going on in Israel. So Paul is cutting down this ideology. And we're tearing down this ideology today where you got individuals that think that I belong to a certain church, I'm automatically saved. I was there. The Catholic Church taught us if you were a Catholic, you belong to the church, you were going to heaven. Even if you went to purgatory, which we know does not exist, but their doctrine says it, even if you go to purgatory, People can give a certain amount of money to get you out, and eventually you will go to heaven. So in our minds, there was no point or no reason to live a holy life. We did whatever we wanted to do because we felt because we were associated to a particular church that that automatically granted us salvation. And that's not true. True. So the idea of accepting Jesus Christ by faith, walking with him by faith, allowing the Holy Spirit to live in us, to guide us, to to bring us to all truth and help us to live a righteous life, that was foreign to us. What was the point of doing that? Because we're associated with the church. So all of those things we did not have to do. And again, that's the mindset that they were looking at. But in the eyes of God, he didn't count it. He didn't count us as belonging to him because we never received him. And and that's why Paul is bringing this out to show them how foolish that they are in their thinking. So the Jews felt that their salvation was solely dependent upon their association to Abraham. So again, in the eyes of God, only faith is the thing that counts. So when God makes a call to us or an urge or a bid to us, it is not meant to force us to do anything but rather gives us the opportunity whether we're going to accept it or not. Because God has called us all to do something and he leaves the choice up to us. And he never violates that. So Paul is going back in the context of this phrase here. He brings out the the, the two children. He says, none of them had did any good or evil, but yet God rejected one and accepted the other without any of them doing anything. Why? Because of foreknowledge. God knew who was going, which boy was going to accept him and which boy was going to reject him. So Paul is saying, as you can see clear in the example of these two boys, God looked at the choice that they were going to make. He didn't look at the association to their father, but he looked at what choice were these two boys going to make. And therefore he brings us out, Paul does to show them that God is looking at what choice you are going to make and not by your association who your father is. That's why he's bringing this out. And then he brings the further context to it home to talk about the election and what that means and the calling and why God did that, why God made the decision to say the promise is coming through this boy and not the, the older brother. It's all about the choice. And that's what Paul was trying to get them to see. Like you have to choose. Because if you if you reject him, guess what? It doesn't matter that Abraham is your father. It, that, that doesn't matter in the eyes of God. That brings in no weight whatsoever. God is looking at, will you accept me? And if you say yes, then okay. You fall in line into as of being a child of Abraham and you will reap the benefits and the promises of that association because of your faith. You're coming in the same manner that Abraham did, which is by faith and believing God. That's what counts you as righteous. Not just simply being born to a particular family or going to a church or who your daddy, who your mommy is. No, because if that was the sole criteria, then God would be uh wouldn't be a just God. And we would have a lot of people walking around doing all crazy things and still going to heaven. How is that going to be right? And that's why Paul is bringing this out. Let's move on. Verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Now we're getting into the spiritual application. So God spoke this to Rebecca in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. The phrase, the elder shall serve the younger, is referring to Esau and Jacob with the greater application, referring to the sin nature serving the divine nature. How do we get this out of there? Well, just look at the character characters of the two brothers. Look at Esau, look what kind of, look what kind of person he was and look what kind of person Jacob was. One did not want to serve God, the other did. The birthright should have gone to Esau, but he sold it to Jacob, he didn't care for it. And then from Esau, you get the certain group of people. And then from Jacob, you get the Israelites. Again, it's the choice. Because going back to verse 11, that's why Paul says, wait a minute. They were not even born, not done in any good or evil. And yet God already elected, chose one. Why? Again, because he knew the decision, the choice that one brother was going to make. And, and, and he knew the decisions of both. But he knew what was going to reject him, the other one was going to accept him. So even though this phrase in the context is speaking of the birthright order between the two brothers, as we've already stated, there is an application that is the spiritual part. The word elder has several meanings depending on the context that it is used. In the spiritual side, the word elder also refers to the sin nature. The word younger refers to the divine nature that enters into our heart at conversion. Second Peter chapter one, verse four tells us this. The sin nature is the elder because it is what we have from our existence. It's what we have first. And the divine nature is called the younger because it comes after the sin nature. And that comes when we accept Christ. And so whenever that day is that comes after our first nature, the elder, because it came first. Going back to the two brothers, I hope you can see the connection between the spiritual component that the scripture is bringing out. And that's why this is important to understand. We now serve the younger. We now should operate in the younger because it is through the younger nature that we receive by faith in Christ that gives us access to the promises that God has said we should have. The promises are not in the elder or the first because of what it represents. It represents the sin nature. It represents the fallen nature. It represents animosity towards God. That's what Esau represents. And God cannot accept that even though they came from the same father it is still dependent upon your acceptance of God. So we all should be operating again in the younger. And that's the only way that you're going to receive the benefits and the promises. So by Paul bringing this to them, they should have understood clearly in what he was saying. So all of those men there that were talking about, we're saved because we're seed of Abraham and blah, 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 blah. Paul was saying, wait a minute, you got the same mindset as Esau. You don't care for the things of God. Look at how you're behaving. God rejected the boy before he could even open his mouth because God knew he was going to reject him later in life. And God can't accept an Esau. He cannot accept a sinful nature and that that sinful nature expects to receive the full blessings that he has, because then that means that God is compromising. And how can a holy, righteous God compromise? It's an impossibility. So there is a standard. That God expects us to follow. He expects us to follow the divine plan, and that is to accept him. That's the only way you're going to be called a child of God. Go back to Romans. When Paul wrote about how we can call God Abba Father, how, do we, how can we call him Father? It is by faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't believe in Christ and you say that you do, you honor him with your mouth, but your heart is far from him, then you are living the life of your father, the devil. And you cannot use your association to a church or who you know to grant you into heaven. That's why Paul is bringing this out. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, some may find these words very strong, but we're going to break them down. The phrase Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated is predicated on a single thing, which is explained in the following points. God loved Jacob simply because Jacob loved him. This has nothing to do with the moral perfection of Jacob. And when you study the scripture, you can clearly see that he was not morally perfect. No human being was, only Jesus Christ. Jacob was not the model of perfection, but there was something in his heart that reached after God. And you can study this in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 30. We have to remember there is nothing within us that can warrant us to have favor with God. It all depends on the condition of our heart. The Lord does not love us because of our talents, abilities, or etc., but rather these things mean nothing to him. And he is looking at the heart, which tells us where our faith is, or, or i.e., the heart of faith. When God appeals to the heart of the sinner and that person responds by faith, that is what God is pleased with. And that's why the Bible says this, Jacob, have I loved. Because if you if you just blankly reject God, that means that you don't want to have anything to do with him. You don't love him. You hate him, actually. So God is just saying, by Jacob's respond to me, I'm responding back to him. God did not indiscriminately love Jacob or hate Esau. God has loved all of humanity. How do we know this? John 3, 16. We go back over here to Romans 5 and 8. We know that. it's not in question. He, he, he loved the world. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know all of this. And this was the, God, the plan of God the Father. And God the Son came to carry out that plan. The greater love is God the Father sending Christ to die for our sins in the world. You can't have any greater love than this. So as I bring the context of this verse into close, the lifestyle of these two men and their attitudes towards God and his work is what is in question. In other words, God loves it when our lifestyle is what he desires, and he hates our lifestyle when it does not line up to what he desires. We we see that throughout the entirety of Scripture. So Jacob's lifestyle upon accepting the drawing of God is what the Lord loved, and the rejection of God's way, which leads to an ungodly lifestyle of Esau, is what the Lord hated. We hear people all the time say, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Absolutely true. Therefore, Jacob has God loved and Esau has he hated. The next verse will explain this further as we get ready to bring our Bible study to a close. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Look what Paul said. Because when you go back to this particular verse, it seems that God is being unrighteous. Because here you're talking about you love one child and you hate another child. That to the, to the reader looking at it from a natural perspective, it would seem like, wow, that's not right. How can you love one boy and hate the other boy even before they came out the womb? But look at what Paul says here. The question, what shall we say then, is meant to dispel the interpretation that God was unfair in how he viewed Jacob and Esau. The question, is there unrighteousness with God? It's asked in case you were wondering if it was possible for God to act in this manner. The phrase, God forbid, is the answer to the previous phrase. We have to understand that everything that God does is right. It is right because it is right, and God always does what is right. Because of this fact, it is impossible for God to do anything unrighteous. God does not operate like we do. When the word jealous or hatred or hate is used, and as it relates to God, it is not defined in the same manner that we would define it towards human beings. That's something that we all have to remember when we're studying Scripture and staying within the context of it. God's passions do not come from maliciousness or favoritism, for he loves every person alike. If he didn't, then John 3.16 could not be true. However, his righteousness can never allow him to condone sin in any way. God not only shows mercy, grace, love, patience, and kindness to Israel, but he does it to all of humanity. How do we know this? We're all still breathing. We're all still experiencing the grace of of God. There are certain doctrines that would imply, that would seem to imply unrighteousness by God, but this is where you have to let scripture interpret itself and you must stay within the context of the verse. If God predestined some to go to heaven and hell and he arbitrarily loved Jacob and hated Esau, then God would be unrighteous in doing so. And this is how many people within the church and outside the church believe this particular scripture. God loves all of his creation as has been pointed out in the preceding verses. There are some that will have more opportunity than others, but it is not God's fault, and it is not God being picky or uh, uh, he's being partial to one or, or or favoritism to one and not the other. But rather, it's always been predicated upon faith is the very thing that pleases God, for the scripture says without faith is impossible to please him. God has chosen the the, the way to operate the way that he does as it respects to man's choice to decide whether to obey him or disobey him. God could force all of us to bow down to his will, but that would make his creation slaves instead of his children. God is no respecter of persons. And I have the various scriptures here 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. There's a multitude of others as well. Anyone who abides in God's conditions will be treated with favor, and all who refuse to do so will suffer the consequences. So that's why Paul is able to bring out this question. So when you go back and you look at how scripture is interpreting itself, we can clearly see that it was obvious that God is dealing with the heart. And the Bible lets us know that God hates sin. He hates it because he understands what it will do. So yes, when somebody willfully chooses to live a life of sin, God cannot accept that. God hates that. He hates the fact that you're allowing sin to dominate you when he has provided you the way of escape. And and he makes this this appeal to all men, no matter what color you are. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. He makes the appeal to all of us. He desires that no man perish, but all come to everlasting life. That's what he desires, and he loves righteousness because he is righteous, and he hates unrighteousness because it destroys, it kills, it brings death, destruction, heartache, and pain. Why would you love that? So for those who choose to go the way of Lucifer's ideology and mindset, that's what causes the rejection. Sin is the the thing that separates us from God. God cannot stand in sin. You wouldn't allow somebody to come in your house. If they, if I walk into your house right now and I start tearing up your walls, punching holes in your walls, kicking down your doors, and just tearing up stuff, you would be a fool to allow me to keep staying in your house. You would put me out, and rightly so, because I'm bringing destruction to a home that doesn't have that. So why would you allow that to continue? Why would you tolerate that? Why would you compromise your standards to allow that to come in? Why would you allow me to negatively affect your children, your grandchildren? You would You would immediately reject me and put me out of your house and rightly so. That's all God is doing in this context. And it goes back to let Israel know that again, you cannot claim association. think that you automatically say last verse of the ninth for he said to moses i will have mercy on whom i will have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion the phrase for he said to moses is paul going back to the old testament to bring out an important point this just proved once again that the old testament cannot be dismissed from our bible knowledge it all comes together in one package the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed and knowing what God has said throughout the entirety of his word is important. So now Paul is bringing it back to Moses. The phrase, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This comes from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. I'm going to read a quote from theologian Barnby uh, as what he said of this particular verse. Exodus 33, verse 19, he says, Moses had asked the Lord to show him his glory as a token that he and the people of Israel found grace in his sight. The Lord answered Moses by allowing all of his goodness to pass before him. This was a sign that Moses had found grace in God's sight. God declared that the grace that was extended to him was not the result of anything that he had done But rather, it was according to God's own good pleasure. So the scripture is telling us that God is sovereign and that sovereignty is over his mercy as well. This verse no way suggests that God indiscriminately shows mercy to a few and not to others, but that he is always fair and just in how he deals with man. Because remember, what did Moses do? Moses was believing God. Moses was following God. I hope you see the connection here. Go back and read the story of Moses. It was all about faith. Again, God knew that Moses would accept him. So that's why God could call him and elect him to be a deliverer. Because if we were looking at just works, Moses was a murderer, he killed an Egyptian. That alone would have disqualified him if we were just looking about goodness and works. But no, as you study his life in the text surrounding Moses, this man believed God. Even though he had some questions about God when he was talking about, hey, I, I don't talk eloquently, how the world I'm going to stand before Pharaoh, God ignored it because God still knew that Moses was going to go. You can tell Moses loved the Lord. And so when we look at this, this is telling us God has conditions and mercy will be shown. The condition, again, is simply faith, believing, trusting, loving the Lord. Mercy cannot be earned. So any efforts to obtain mercy from God is pointless. That's why God is saying he's going to show mercy on whom he may have mercy. Because remember, God knows who is going to accept him. You could could be 20 years old. God knows that 15 years from now, you, you are going to accept him. So God will show you mercy leading up to that 15 years later when you're 35 years old. And then God will still show you mercy afterwards. And God has chosen, I will show mercy on anyone who comes to me by faith. We see the message of faith through here. That's why he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so God is full of compassion and he extends that all to humanity. So we're going to end here in our study tonight, but just to do a a, a recap of what we talked about, everything is, is centered around doing away with Salvation salvation by association, doing away with uh heirs to the promises by association. That's really what this is all about. And and God is saying that no, it's not about the association, it's about your acceptance of me. Because going back to the two brothers, Esau and Jacob, God's, I rejected one and loved the other one, and they ain't even did anything good or evil yet. But again, God knew. The heart of both brothers and he knew one was going to reject him and one was going to accept him and that's what he's looking at who's going to love me who's going to accept me that's all God's looking at he's looking at the, the heart not the association so there is no association by salvation and so as Israel was guilty of that many are guilty of that as well And so I hope that this is brought home to your understanding that God is very serious about his word. He's very serious about what he says about salvation and what pleases him. You know, we cannot uh, think that we can go around God's order. And a lot of people believe that. And forgive me, I'm just I'm just actually writing the title of of, of tonight's Bible study message. Uh, Salvation is not by association, because I think that's the that that's the theme that we that that we've been talking about throughout our course of our study tonight, and I just didn't want to lose that that topic. And you can't deceive yourself. Israel was deceiving themselves, and millions, billions of people are deceiving themselves today. Many in the church are deceiving themselves. You know, I was just watching a, a video today by Craig G. Lewis of EX Ministries, and he was just pointing out um, how how a lot of the uh, gospel artists are merging with the secular artists, and you know, and a lot of the secular artists are still talking about like, "I got Jesus, I'm, I'm going to heaven." And, uh, you know, they're doing all sorts of perverted things consistently day by day by day. Even the many in the church, you know, he was showing uh individuals who were saying that we're going to mix gospel and R&B together and we're going to merge this. And we can sing all of these love sexual songs one day and then we can still lift our hands and praise God the next day. And, and, and God is OK with all of that. God is OK with us. Uh, mixing together, having a little leaven and all of this and, 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 and just doing all of this crazy stuff because in their mind, we're, all, we're already saved because, you know, we belong to a church or I believe in God and this and that and I want to just reach people and so I got to become like them. All of these different things that people are doing, going against what the Bible is saying, in their mind, they feel like they're good. They're all right. That they can sing secular art songs in a worship service you know that they can praise people who are openly not secretly but openly rejecting god openly going against everything that the bible stands for but yet they're saying like i know i'm going to heaven because i grew up baptist you know my dad was a preacher my my mom was a deacon of the church you know I know the word. I, over the years I've talked to um, atheists and homosexuals and they all said the same thing. Oh yeah, I, I know so and so was this in the church. And I just feel like if you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. And And we can't do that. We cannot equate salvation by association to whether you be like a church, a person or whatever. That's not what God is looking for. He's looking for the heart. So I hope that you've enjoyed tonight's message. I tell you, it was powerful and impactful. Um, And I hope that you have really came into the understanding that uh, God knows exactly what he is doing. And, and, And God wants us to be in that position where We are looking toward him, understanding him, and and, and loving him, and and doing exactly what he has called us to do and abiding in him. And so upon next week, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 16 through 20. Again, come check out our ministry webpage at nugnc.com look at our facebook page facebook.com backslash new gen CWC. and if you want to look at the study notes that i was using tonight this is the website here go down and download them share them as with many people as you possibly can check out the podcast i got going on I'm still working on getting that back up to where it needs to be um, but god is doing a lot of great things in our life and we just have to continue to hold on and believe in the word of God. So again, I hope that you've enjoyed tonight's study. I I think it was an awesome study. And before we go, let's bow our heads unto the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you this evening for this opportunity to come together and study your word. I pray that something was said to strengthen your people. I pray that you would give us uh, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding of your word and help us in all things to remain in you and be students of your word and the salt and light that is needed. As we leave this Bible study, oh God, I pray that you would touch us as we take our rest tonight or whatever we may be in this world, that your presence may forever be with us. We love you and we tell you thank you. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you all for your attention tonight and God willing, I will see you back here on next week. Be blessed in Jesus Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen.